Hey there, e-commerce enthusiasts. Let me tell you about a game changer in shipping, ShipStation. It's the ultimate platform for simplifying your shipping process. With ShipStation, you can easily import, manage, and ship your orders in no time. It integrates seamlessly with your favorite e-commerce platforms and carriers, ensuring a smooth workflow. Gain valuable insights with their powerful analytics and reporting tools. Say goodbye to shipping headaches. Visit MilwaukeeMafia.com slash ship and level up your shipping game today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back with a re-record. Yes. So, (laughs) we're doing... Garbage collection part two, right? Garbage part two, yeah. As much as uh, as much as I hate re-record, it's been enough uh, time between the first time doing it and now that I'm not bitter about having to do it over <laughs> again. Uh, and and this is really this. In going back through the notes, this is really a story that needs to be on here because I think it really adds so much more to the surrounding episodes that having to cut it for a while. Um, was probably real, was harming us. So was a shame. I, yeah, so I, I'm glad the people starting from the beginning will get to hear this where they were supposed to hear it, and I hope other people who didn't get to hear it the first time through go Goes back, back and, and hear it, because this is, this is really a, a great story. Um, and I don't always say that, but this one I really do think is a great story. Well, without further ado, get into this story. All right. All right. I will. <laughs> okay. Garbage collection part two. We'll see how much you remember this from the first time around. I remember a good part of it, a piece, a good chunk of it, I think. Okay. So, so this is probably almost two years later at this point. Yeah. We're doing this a while. Anyway, so our focus this time around are on the Magistral brothers. And the Magistral brothers are Charles, Frank, and James. And they are recent immigrants from Sicily to Milwaukee. And as I think we... we touched on last time towards the end because of the way this all times out when the sicilian immigrants come to milwaukee this is when the garbage collection run by the city is really taking off Um, so most people don't want to be garbage collectors it's not a glamorous job so the new people in town sort of get that opportunity because nobody else else wants wants it (laughs) Um, and it works out really well because the Third Ward, which is where a lot of these Sicilian immigrants live, is quite close to the Erie Street incinerator. You know, at this point in time where they're walking around, you know, either literally walking around or at best they have a horse. It's nice to actually live in the neighborhood where you're where taking you the garbage. <laughs> so these three brothers are three of the many people who come and get a job in garbage collection. Well, anyway, on May 3rd, 1920, the Magistral brothers went to the DA's office. This is District Attorney Winfred Zabel, and they had a story to tell him. At this point, Zabel had already been kind of a well-known district attorney. Um, He had been credited with cleaning up the red light district in Milwaukee, so he was a very celebrated guy. He was also uh, the district attorney at the time uh, in November 1917 when a bomb was brought into the Central Police Station, which blew up and killed nine officers, which at that time was the highest 
death count of police life in American history. Wow. And held that record all the way until September 2001. Holy crap. So for, what is that? Over 80 years, this Milwaukee bombing was the worst day in police history. I do not think you had that piece of information in the original episode. Maybe not. I don't. Maybe not. Anyway, and there are a couple books out there on that bombing, which I highly recommend. Um, there's one by Bobby Tanzillo, and there's one by Dean Strang. The Dean Strang one is gets a lot more into the legal stuff. Bobby's book is more on the community, because it did happen in the Italian community. Uh, depending on which angle you want, or both. They're both good books. Anyway, so the three brothers uh, alleged that under demand... They had originally paid $150 to garbage inspector Pete Guadalabene, who is the son of mob boss Vito Guadalabene. They had to pay $150 to get their jobs hauling trash to the city incinerator. In addition, they each had to purchase their horse and their wagon from Guadalabene for $900. And then after these preliminary payments, they were permitted to go to work for $6 a day. If you do the math on that, Six dollars a day. It's gonna take them a long time to pay back <laughs> what they had to pay to get these jobs. Uh, Guadalabena himself had started with the city uh, as a lower-ranking uh, city employee at the pumping station. Which I don't entirely know what that means, um, and he went up the ranks until he finally became a supervisor at the garbage incinerator, which is a fairly good position. At the time, the magistra said that Guadalabena notified them that going forward, they would be expected to pay him a certain percentage of their monthly earnings in addition to what they had already paid. They had been paying this actually for a little while already, but they recently decided that they could no longer do so. They said this doesn't make any sense, having to pay to go to work, and then we end up not even having enough money for rent and food and everything else. This Something about this doesn't quite add up. And it's not clear how much they knew that this was not right or that they figured it out later that it wasn't right. Because it's possible, you know, when they came over, they didn't speak English and they were told that this is how it works. Maybe that they thought, oh, maybe this is how this works. But sooner or later, they figured out the math just didn't add up and this couldn't be right. So they went to the district attorney and they said, uh, yeah, this isn't good. Um, After hearing the story, the district attorney told the brothers to see the detectives who worked in the third ward. The detectives would know about this even better than the district attorney would. So now we're going to actually step back a couple years. Okay. We're we're all over in this episode, but I assure you, it's for good reason. Going back a few years, this was 1920 that we were in. Going back to 1918... An agent of the Bureau of Investigation, which is the thing that was before the FBI, just called the Bureau of Investigation at that point, were looking into the Guadalabene family, believing that Angelo, who was the brother of Pete and another son of Vito, had falsely filed out his draft card, specifically claiming that he had to support his elderly father and therefore could not be drafted. Uh, The agent went to their house on Detroit Street, and when he knocked on the door, he was answered by John Aliotto, the later mob boss, um, who claimed to the agent that he was a cousin of the Guadalabene family. Um, why he would tell them this at all, I don't know, but um, 
he wasn't really a cousin in the sense that we think of. I mean, distantly, maybe, but not. you wouldn't normally say that you're a cousin. So I don't even know how that came up. So this is in 1918? Yeah. So when was John Aliota the mob boss? The 50s. Wow, he must have been pretty old at that point in time then. Yes. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so Aliota said the family was gone at the moment, but they'd be back in the afternoon. So the agent returns, and Angelo answers the door. The agent asked to speak to Vito, but was told that the older man could not speak English. So they continued to talk, and Angelo explained how he had to support his father because his father was old, too feeble to work, and had recently undergone surgery for bladder stones. So he's like, look, my father, he's old, he's weak, can't speak English. I, I can't be drafted. I have to support him. And he's also a mob boss. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Just want to clarify that. <laughs> yes. Um, and he said, I, Angelo, have to be the one to do it. My brother Pete cannot support our father because Pete has his own large family he has to support. So it's all on me. I have to do it. Well, the agent, you know, he, he didn't stop there. He went around and he spoke to a clerk at the Register of Deeds office. Why he chose that, I don't know, but he did. And the clerk knew the family. The clerk said that uh, he wanted to keep what he said confidential because he was kind of afraid of what the family might do to him for what he would say. Um, he said, my understanding is that Vito is the king of the Black Hand Society, which, you know, for not being an Italian guy, that was a pretty good way of describing him as the mob boss. Clerk said that the Guadalabene family were well-to-do and had been very influential in getting Italians to the polls on Election Day. When asked if Vito was dependent on Angelo, the clerk doubted this, saying the family was well-off and Vito could speak and understand English just fine. He referred the agent to another person who would know more. The other person told the agent that Vito was indeed known around Milwaukee as the King of the Black Hand, but insisted that he should talk to the local immigration authorities about this because this man that he, the agent's speaking to only really knows him indirectly. Speaking confidentially, the immigration guy, this guy's name is Angelo Sermonera, he said that he knew the Guadalabenes for years and helped them secure loans because they had no financial standing and their credit was very poor because they had never made a success of anything they undertook. He said that Vito could barely even sign his own name and prior to his recent surgery was chasing after young girls for immoral purposes. <laughs> Sermonera was not sure if Vito could work, but he said that he wouldn't work even if he could because it would, beneath him, it would be beneath him as king of the Italians to do so. Regarding Angelo, Sermonera said that they had a conversation where Angelo said he would be exempt from the military because of his position with the city. Sermonera said, that's not how that works. You, you still can get drafted if you work for the city. <laughs> Angelo changed his story and then said that he couldn't be drafted because he needed to support his father. Sermonera told the agent that he did not think that Vito needed the son's support, and this was just a, just a story. The agent spoke with the police chief in Milwaukee, who called the Guadalabene family a tough bunch and very dangerous. He acknowledged that Vito was one of many Italians recently rounded up after the police station bombing, though he was not believed to actually be involved. 
The chief said he had heard that Vito had proposed marriage to Christine Salamone, the wife of a shoemaker. When Christine insisted that she couldn't marry Vito because she was already married, Vito said this was no problem and he could take care of her husband. The agent, being very thorough, then goes and speaks to Christine Salamone, who, at this point I should point out, is only 19. <laughs> and Gordo Bene is basically elderly. She had recently moved with her husband away from the third ward. She said that they moved to escape Vito, who insisted that her husband pay him for reasons that she didn't know. He had attempted to get Christine to leave her husband, insisting that he could support her better. She explained that Vito was well off, and in the ward everyone feared him, because his word was law. The agent found enough evidence to report to the draft board that he doubted this uh, that Angela needed to support his father, but nothing ever actually became of the investigation. Big detour there to just kind of explain that the Guadalupanes are already well-known mm. in the community. The, the, the police chief, the register of deeds, everybody knows who these guys are. Right. So it's not like it's a big super secret that Vito's the mob boss. Like, yeah, and he's not, yeah, he's not, I mean, you can tell these people legitimately fear him as well. Right, You know. right. So, like, even though it's, you know, it's a secret, like, oh, it's the mafia, it's the secret, like, apparently everybody knows. knows. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we back on to our main story, 1920. It's May 4th, apparently a very cold May 4th, because temperature is just above freezing. So it's 1920, May 4th. The Magestro brothers arrived at the garbage incinerator. When he saw the Magestros, Pete Guardalabene ordered Charles to report to the superintendent of street and alley sanitation and resign his position. He had heard that he was talking to the DA. So you're going to you're going to fire, you're going to get quit. Get out of here. Hot words followed, and Magestro protested against leaving his wagon box at the incinerator, claiming that the entire vehicle belonged to him because he had paid for it. A fight broke out with guns and clubs. Guadalabene, supervisor, was knocked unconscious. Charles was shot in the right hand, shredding his wool jacket and severing his pinky finger. Dozens of Italians were said to have been involved in the scuffle. Guardalabene, Magestro, Magestro's brothers were all arrested and brought in for questioning. Um, this was all going on for some time. They called in the, the supervisor of the supervisor, so Guardalabene's boss, and he said, I consider Mr. Guardalabene a high-grade citizen. Furthermore, Graft in that department would seem very improbable when one considers that those collectors make scarcely enough to live on and feed their, fa- their families and horses, much less give a portion of their pay as tribute to anyone. Gordelabene's boss coming in to defend him there. Either way, they the Gordelabene's, uh, specifically Pete and his brother Angelo, were rounded up, put in jail, and accused of taking uh, taking money from people. I don't know exactly what that crime is, but uh, basically forcing people to give bribes is not a good thing to do. All right, so there's a there's a there's a good deal more here, but I'm I'm going to actually summarize going forward because it gets into like some bits and pieces here that people can actually find in the Milwaukee Mafia book, the white one, um, because this is a summary of like a chapter out of the book. So it's not going to be posted on the website, but um, they can get the Milwaukee Mafia book. But so what happens from here on out? is the Guadalabenes are in jail for forcing bribes. Um, so now when you say forcing bribes, you're talking about like make them making these people buy their carts and stuff? Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Them 
saying, if you give us money, we'll give you jobs, which right. is like a big no-no. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, I mean, not that it's ever okay, but especially when you're working for the city. Yeah. Like, can't really do that. So they're in jail. They, you know, they get let out of jail. They pay their bail and everything like that. Go back to work. Uh, the Magestros, um, I don't know if they return to work or not because I feel like that's got to be really awkward. But this goes on for some time between this and the trial. It actually gets dragged out over a year before it finally goes to trial. Uh, the DA does a, a good di- bit of investigating, asking around, getting a number of stories from people who actually tell similar versions of this. So it's not just these three brothers who tell the story. The DA is able to find other people who said, yeah, similar things happened to us. While they're waiting for trial, the Magistros actually start receiving threatening letters in the mail, anonymous threatening letters. So who knows who they're from? from. But, you know, it's very strongly implied. That it's probably the Guadalobenes. Yeah, it's probably (laughs) them. And it's like, hey, uh... You should probably stop talking to the DA, this and that. Finally does go to trial, like I said. It takes over a year before it finally gets to trial. The DA's got plenty of evidence, but you, but you know what happens. They just throw it out, or they're found not guilty. The They're found not guilty, but, but that's jumping ahead a little bit. Okay. So, at the trial, they, of course, called the Magistra brothers. Majestra Brothers being the star witnesses here, because they're kind of the ones who kicked this whole thing off. And at this point in time, the three brothers' stories change considerably. They don't seem to remember making payments. Uh, They say the Guadalupe's have always been friends of ours. We definitely don't know anything about problems with them. They are our friends. Um, On the situation where the fight broke out at the incinerator plant they they testified that they say yes we remember there being a fight yes we think somebody had a gun uh we think there was a shooting we don't remember who had the gun or who did the shooting um even though one of the brothers had his finger shot off so he clearly remembers being <laughs> shot, shot. Yeah. um but but all their testimony at this point becomes very vague, where they either don't remember or it couldn't have been the Guadalabene brothers. So, so basically, the mob got a, got to them and said, yeah, if you uh, hold up on your stories, bad things are going to happen to you and your family. And so they changed their story. Precisely. We don't know that, but that's pretty safe to assume. It's, yeah. I mean, so all of this... This all comes from uh, the newspaper reports. Like None of the police reports to this exist anymore, as far as I know. But So this is just based on what I got from the newspapers. The, st- the stuff where they were investigating the draft board stuff, that, that still exists. That was old Bureau of Investigation files. So th- that still exists. But here, this is like the newspaper version. But it is funny, going from the first round of reports, when everybody's getting rounded up and, and taken to jail for this fight that happened at the thing, and they got the big background. And then the year later, it goes to trial, and it's, like, completely Believe different than what they've said the first time around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, I guess, you know, we don't know. Can't say for sure. Maybe the brothers are just big liars, and they decided they weren't going to lie anymore. More, yeah, they but, felt guilty about everything they lied about yeah. and changed. Decided to come clean and admit the truth. But based upon 
what the newspapers reported and what the district attorney publicly said, uh, it seems pretty clear that there was a number of people who could back up that you had to pay to get your job working for garbage collection, and somebody convinced them not to talk about that in court. Interesting. So, I mean, wow. I I think this, and maybe this is why, like you mentioned at the beginning of the story, why you thought that this particular episode was really important to be in there. Yes. Because I kind of feel like this gives a really good example of just how powerful this, the mafia was even at this time. Yes. You know, because, I mean, this is a show of (laughs) quite quite a bit of power, you know. Right. Yes. So, yeah. So Vito... You know, even though he's an he's an old guy, like people know who he is. He's feared. Whether they know there's mafia or not, they they know not to mess with this guy. And his two sons work in garbage collection, which is one of like the main employers for this part of town. Um, they have over a hundred people working under them. So like they they're not only powerful because of mafia threats they're like politically powerful because if you want a job you got to go through these guys and part of this like relates to there's there's a tradition i don't know if this is an italian thing or a sicilian thing but one or the other or both um called the padrone system which is basically when you would come over to the united states there'd be people in the community who would help set up the new people with jobs. Mm-hmm. And that system is not bad. But the wrong people, the wrong people, people run the are system. Yeah. 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 Like it makes sense. You come over, you don't speak English or your English is very poor. You want somebody who understands how things work to get you going. Yeah. But yeah, when the people in that position are going to lie to you about how you get a job. Or tell you that you have to pay them to get a job. Yeah. That, that those are not the people you want running that yeah, system. Yeah, it's a complete corruption, corruption. of the tradition yeah. that's supposed to help your fellow countrymen get ahead. And it's really funny, too, that the way this story plays out, because I find this... Because we've talked about how, like, I don't know, like, family and and stuff like that Mm -hmm. was really important to the Italians. And even if you were in the mafia type thing. Yeah. And I kind of feel like this is an example where that gets thrown out the window because I feel like these are other Italians coming into the Third Ward. Yeah. I feel like the mafia nature would be to help them. But right now they're exploiting them. Right. You know? and Right. I, I understand what you're saying. But that is not at all how that works. <laughs> um, I and and I mean, take it back a generation. So like a generation earlier, they're in Sicily. So the people that they're messing with are other Sicilians. Mm-hmm. Like that's the only option because you're in Sicily. But yeah, like coming coming here, I see what you're saying. It would make more sense to be like, hey, we're gonna help out these people. And screw everyone else. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's not at all. Right. It's not at all how it worked. It was for 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 the longest time they really only screwed 
with the other the Sicilians. Sicilians. Like if you didn't live in the third ward, you didn't have to. It worry wasn't a about, problem. You didn't have to worry about Vito yeah. Gordalabene did not care about you unless yeah. you were. Uh, yeah, you'd read about him in the paper, but it wasn't your problem. problem. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, they they preyed on their own people, which is awful. But, it is but, really awful. But that's what they did. Yeah. I don't really have anything else for this, but yeah. I mean, it is a good story. Yeah. And I, I, you're right. Like, it brings around, it brings a lot of the, I, I think it does a really good job of representing the early mafia. Exactly. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. So, like, I, I'm sure people at home can tell, but, like, for the first half, I was, like, reading more, and then the second half, I switched to just kind of telling the story. And the reason I had, like, I wanted to read as much as I could for the first half because there's nothing here that I think should be skipped over. Like, just to really drive home what these guys could do. Mm -hmm. Just, like, they're known. Uh, that, Like you said, the, the power of the mafia in this period, 1920, this shouldn't be anything. Like, this, it should be a joke at this point. <laughs> yeah. Like, prohibition hasn't even kicked off yet. But at this point, they're already, everybody knows that you do not screw with this guy. guy yeah. yeah. And it just kind of really gives a eye opening. And I don't think we, I don't even know, I don't know that we talked about that the first time. And I don't think I got that at all from the first time around. Sure. Listening to this story. Just the amount of power that was, that's there already. At this early of stage. Yeah, it's it's really weird because, I mean, this is not Milwaukee specific. Like, this was kind of the thing. Like, anywhere these Italian communities popped up, people, and I don't know how, how much this is, like, something they actually believed or just something like the newspaper said. But based on, you know, what we got out of, like, the, the agent's report, it's not that people really did believe this, that, like, there was always, like, a king of the neighborhood, like not literally a king, but that's like they would call them that. And that happened like across the country in all the communities. And they weren't always the mob boss. Like I said, sometimes it was a good guy who really wanted to make the community good. Every time somebody came over, they wanted to help them out. So, um, and even in Milwaukee, like the king wasn't always the mob boss. It just happened to be the same guy in this case. But another guy and. I'm sure we talked about it in a different episode, but another guy who's king for a while uh, was a guy named Mike Vitucci. And Mike Vitucci, by most accounts, was a decent person. Like, he actually was trying to be helpful. Mm -hmm. So, um, this 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 fake position of king, like, really, it could go bad if the wrong person had it. Mm -hmm. So, the question, question I have about this is, okay, they're able to pull this off. Yes. Because was it the two sons or just Pete was working as... They both were. Pete and Angela both were. Pete was like the supervisor, but they both had like decent positions. So uh, I'm going to make you step outside of your, your comfort zone and speculate here. Okay. Do you think that that was done by design with the idea of doing this in the background? Or do you think that... They just got these positions because, like we've said, most Milwaukee Mafia members have to have jobs anyways because the right. Milwaukee Mafia just didn't make that much money that you couldn't, you didn't need to have a job. Right? Do you think they just had those positions and, you know, saw an opportunity because they had those positions to do this? 
And the reason why I ask that okay. is because the thing I find interesting about this is, like you said at the beginning, this job was one of the most uninter or undesir- a very undesirable job to have. Yes. But at the same time, it was right there in the third ward. Mm-hmm. And like you said, they had 100 people working underneath them. And I can't imagine that there was another job in the third ward that provided that many people with employment. I, well, I absolutely agree with the last part of that. Yeah. Yes. Um, the, so when the Italians came over, like the stereotypical jobs that they would get would be like barber, fruit peddler, um, you know, they might run a bar, but yeah, like all these things where you don't have a huge payroll. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, definitely as far as that goes, if you want something where you're overseeing people, this was a, a much better way to go. Um, whether they pursued that on purpose, I don't know. I definitely think that they had opportunities available to them as well-connected people, even though not always well-connected for the right reasons, but for that to to move up, um, and that gave them the ability to then do these things. I don't know how well in advance this was like a plan where they're like, we're going to, we're going to move into this. So then we can, we can do these things. I don't know. That's hard to say, but it is interesting to me that as, as I've said many times on this podcast, like things time out the same everywhere across the country. So in that, that was going to be another question I was going to ask. So, is this a common thing across mafias? Yes, yes. Now, I think in the in the the Milwaukee area, this might be more pronounced than in other areas because it is so perfect how the incinerator is there, like in their neighborhood. So I think it might be a little more so in Milwaukee's case, but absolutely, like with almost no exception, I would say when garbage collection really took off nationwide. It went into the Italian Sicilian communities, and it was largely grabbed by the wrong people. So this is like garbage collection has a very strong connection to mafia going back to this point, and and in some places it continued that way for decades. I'm mostly familiar with Chicago outside of Milwaukee. And Chicago was like that, seriously, at least through the 60s, if not later, where there would be private garbage collection companies that contracted with the city. And they were almost always mob-owned. Really? Yeah. And I don't know exactly why, but I think it's just because it timed out where garbage collection became the thing at the time where those immigrants got the job. and, And it just... They latched onto it. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the way I see it is is that even though it might not be like a desirable position to like everybody in Milwaukee, but it was the cat, it was the top shelf probably job for a Sicilian, maybe. Yeah. And that's why they clung to it, because to them, they were living in their little world, and that seemed like the biggest fish to grab yeah. hold of. You know? I think that's reasonable. I like, I... I don't know enough about all of that to really speculate too much, but definitely, like you see that, and I, 
like garbage collection and like street sweepers. Those were like the big jobs <laughs> for for that group. It just timed out that way. But yeah, and and if you're like if you're the bad guy, if you're the mob guy, it's a good position to be in. Right. Because like in here it's run by in Milwaukee is run by the city. So there, you know, you had the employees underneath you you could do. But like in Chicago where a lot of it was privately done. That puts you in a really powerful position Definitely. because if you if you one day you're like, hey, guess what? We're not going to pick up your garbage anymore. More. People don't like that. Yeah. So it puts you in a position where you can make demands, you know, and get contracts, which isn't that isn't necessarily a criminal thing. I mean, that's just a business thing, but it does give you access to more power because. Once you stop providing that service, people realize they really like their garbage getting picked and, up. And if you show up at their door and say, I'm not going to pick up your garbage anymore unless you give me five bucks right now. Yeah. I mean, people will do that yeah. because they don't want their garbage to be sitting there. Right. So. So, yeah, it's not not strictly like a mafia thing. Like, that's just good business. But they just happen to be the guys who Ooh. caught on to that and got into that that field. They saw the opportunity because it was right there. I mean, it was kind of right in front of them because that's the people that this stuff was falling to. Yeah. Just and not because Italians are bad or anything. It's just right. because they were the new guys. And that's right. when you're the new guys, that's kind of how it ends up playing. Exactly. Out for exactly. You. I mean, that's just how it, that's how it timed out. And, you know, stereotypes are a bad thing, but stereotypes often have some truth to them. Like, like the generation before the Italians were like the Irish mm -hmm. and the Irish ended up getting into a lot of like the political and police and fire department jobs. And that's, you know, there's like the stereotype of like the Irish cops and stuff, but like, there's a reason that stereotype Which exists, exists like, because when cops were becoming a thing, yeah, when the police department really the blew up, the Irish were the, were new the people, people that needed jobs. Yeah. So they got the jobs. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I think that the re-record was way more interesting than the original. Probably. I don't really remember the original. It's, that prob long, it's but, probably better. Yeah. But maybe we've gotten better at what we do here. I think so. So I think we've gotten a lot better. So. All right. Well, I, th I think our ep early episodes are terrible. And I'm sorry people had to <laughs> do <hear> them. <laughs> but thanks for hanging with us yeah. while we figured this stuff out. Yeah. And half the listeners are like, "You, you guys' episodes are still terrible." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're this, we're just as terrible. We just don't care anymore. No, no, no. We're 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 glad we're glad that people listen and we love doing it. So we do. So with that, we'll wrap this episode up. I believe we have two more re-records to do. Is that right? possibly yeah i believe it is two more episodes that need to be re-recorded so if you are listening to this you know and if something doesn't make sense it's probably because we haven't got back to the re-recording the next the last, final two episodes but they will be out there yeah eventually. generally i think you can skip an episode and it doesn't really throw off the story too much this one though yeah when i went back and i saw the notes i was like oh crap yeah we should we really. <laughs> we really like there's a big gap not talking about the Vito Cordelometti background. Like, uh-oh. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Just glad this one got back in there. So, all right. Well, we will be back. Well, you can tune in next week for the next episode after this series. You could technically tune in tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so, you could tune yeah. in right after you get done listening to this one. Yeah. So, so. But we, again, we thanks everybody for the continued support of the podcast. We'll be back with the new episodes coming in the future weeks. Thanks right. again. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey listeners, quick question. Are you tired of overpaying for your mobile plan? I've got the answer. Ting Mobile. Ting Mobile is all about flexibility and savings. You only pay for what you use, no crazy fees or overages. It's perfect for those who want control over their phone bill without sacrificing quality. Say goodbye to bloated phone bills. Go to milwaukeemafia.com slash ting. Ting Mobile. Mobile that makes sense.